I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. What is leadership like in today's football world? Welcome to another edition of Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show. I am Daily News columnist Dave Murphy. David Murphy. You may know me as in print. I am joined here by my trusty companion, sidekick, the Robin to my Batman. Ah, oh, really? You're going to sell me, sell me that short? You're wearing a pink shirt today. I am. I am. I think I, you know. But I will say this. I like pink. It takes a real man to wear pink, but... We got to do something about the buttons on the collar. That is such an you don't old, like a, that is such an old man thing. Really? Yeah. My oh, dad. No. My dad wears buttons on his collar. First of all, can you tell everybody who I am? This is Mike Sielski, columnist at the Philadelphia Inquirer, who's had a very strong week of column writing. Uh, ah, thank you. I must say the Brian Scott story you may have read in the Philadelphia Inquirer um, last weekend. Yeah, last week. That was last that week. was a very good story. I am, you know, I'm not a concussion denier, but I'm just kind of. Whatever, it doesn't get me worked up the mm-hmm. way a lot of issues do. Uh, but the Brian Scott thing, I think, was one of the better stories I've written on or read on the topic. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was. It was it's not the best. It was to me. It was interesting because it was not the kind of really severe situation, you know, Mike Webster, uh, Chris Borland kind of thing. Right. That in some ways, I feel like uh, people can easily dismiss as well. Those are the outliers. You know, nobody, very rarely does somebody get as bad as Mike Webster did. Very rarely does somebody walk away from pro football at 24 years old like Chris Borland from the 49ers did. And Brian Scott, by the way, former CB, CB East, CB East linebacker, form, former Penn State uh, defensive back, 10 year NFL veteran. Okay. Um, and he's now 35 and having memory loss. And to me, that's what made it interesting was that he stayed in the league, played 10 years, is very successful since leaving the NFL and is still experiencing memory loss. Like, here's the best-case scenario for what an NFL player can be both during and after his career, and he's still experiencing some problems. So that made the story more compelling to me. But thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, and, and I think that, that that's why I was interested in it. Um, and j- just to give you guys a heads up, we're going to be talking a lot about the Eagles today. We're going to be talking about the Phillies today. Um, Carson Wentz is kind of the topic du jour. Oh, yeah. Mm, I'll have that. <laughs> There's an 80s reference. With, with a side of a hairline fracture. So we're going to be talking about Carson Wentz. We're going to break down the Eagles' uh, preseason week number one victory, a rousing victory over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, but, yeah, the Brian Scott thing, I think that's exactly – I think you nailed why I enjoyed or at least found rewarding your column on the matter. My, my, my hesitation with concussions, I have no doubt that there is a link between football and concussions. I have no doubt that players should be – uh, concerned about participating in such a sport, I just get a little leery when anything that happens, we start to blame on CTE. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a memory loss. I, I leave my keys in the freezer sometimes. Right. You know, I mean, my grand and again, my grandfather just pat- recently passed away. He lived a long life. Um, you can you don't you don't need to condole me. Um, condole is that a verb? Um, console. Console. Condolences. I was yeah. looking for that. Anyway. He lived a long life, very, very productive life, 80, 85, 90 years old. But, um, you know, the last couple of years were uh, pretty brutal to watch. I mean, mm-hmm. he, his brain pretty much just deteriorated. On yeah. Him, you know, and it happens to a lot of people, not necessarily just football players. And I think that's that's in the science of the whole thing. That's what I want to see is prevalence, um, you know, a more more of a causal relationship instead of just a corollary relationship and a much larger sample size because again one of the problems with the science right now is that only people who think they might have cte end up donating their brains right exactly um and to me we can go beyond that just to the whole kind of i guess metaphysical would be the word that the the question of how much of this eventually falls on the players themselves as we gain more information about what actually concussions due to the brain what are the long-term effects um earlier this summer i talked about this with malcolm jenkins and zach ertz it was right around the time uh that there was some reporting revealing that the nfl was trying to basically stop or tamp down um the release of information about concussions research studies things like that and one of the things that both malcolm and zach said to me both guys who have suffered concussions 
was that, look, we are men. We are going to, the, the choice to play comes down to us and our own free will. But what we want is we want as much accurate information as possible so that we can make this right. decision. And I think you're right. I think the nuance in the debate gets lost. It comes down to, it, it or, or maybe it comes down to this or it's framed this way. It's football is going to kill everyone who plays it through brain damage or... And turn you into a raging psycho, suicidal right. psychomaniac <laughs> on your way out. Or... We're wussifying America right. by trying to ban football, and we should do everything we can to rage against that. There's a whole lot of gray area between those two, and I, I no that's, pun no pun intended. Right, gray exactly. Area. There's yeah. a whole um, lot of gray matter in between. That's can right. a person who hasn't been introduced yet speak on the show? Or no. Okay. The point is, yeah, I mean, no, you seriously can't speak. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and, and the point is, there's a whole lot of nuance there. And that's why, to me, the Brian Scott story and talking to him was interesting because he falls right in that. And I that and I timeline. think I think the thing probably that influenced me the most out of the story is the fact that Brian Scott went out of his way to say concussions didn't make me retire. Right. Uh, you know, he, he he took personal responsibility for just about everything. Right. Um, he had no and, regrets and I, about playing football at like, all. I mean, the problem with this whole concussion thing. And it's where I empathize a bit with the NFL. It's turned into a game of lawyers. Yes. And, you know, the NFL can't say a lot of the things that people want it to say because it would open up a legal... Pandora's box. Yeah, it would, yeah. Well, it would open up... Liability. It would open up a legal flank, you know, for the other side's lawyers to attack them. And, and then again, I am, not, I am in no way minimizing the disease, uh, the condition, the injury, but you got a long line of people who have a lot of money to gain from, um, you know, their point of view prevailing. Right. And I think it was helpful to have the perspective of somebody who has not yet experienced some of these things that might put him in a position to seek money from the NFL, you know, who, who has kind of clearly taken a sober look at his life, at the disease, at the medical literature. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that part of the story that, stood out most to me was when he said, you know, I, I don't know if I would let my kids play football mm-hmm. because you could tell it's a guy who's simply his, his only priority is, or his only, his only, um, yeah, his only priority is figuring out what to do with his kids. It's not, right. you know, right. And he, and he's a perfect, he's an interesting example too, because I trust his opinion. Or I yeah. Trust because him. he was a guy who, and I've known Brian for gosh, um, 18 years. I started covering him when he was in high school and, and I can say this, you know, we're not friends, we're friendly, we've known each other a long time. He is, to be honest, the only athlete I've ever covered at any level of sports, high school, college, professionally, who I would have let date my sister. Like, that's how good a person he is. He has... Wait, wait, wait. You have... You have... You have rights over your sister. You're, no, I'm just saying, like, like if everything, flo- you know, does she? I have control a- over her life. Do yes, they submit basically. applications to you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, but my point is, he always had a lot of other stuff going on. He was not kind of a. Some people play in the NFL because there's no other route for them. It's what they were completely and totally born to do. You've kind of written about this, I think, with respect to concussions. Like you have. A lot of kids who, you know, the, the danger with concussions, I think, and you've pointed this out in the past, is, you know, if if more and more people decide I'm not going to play football right. or more and more people's parents decide you are not going to play football, who's going to be left to play football? It's going to be lower-income kids who don't have any other option or don't perceive that they have any other option in life. Brian Scott was not that. Brian Scott has a lot going on in his life. He's a business owner. He's a musician. He's really smart. There's a lot going on there. So that to me made it interesting too. It's like he, he wasn't somebody who didn't have a choice, basically. And he's still, you know, dealing with this at the level that he's dealing with it at. Jonathan Tannenwald, you are you now have my permission not okay. to date my sister because she's married with two kids, but you can speak. I'm not Catholic anyway, so I think I'll be okay. I don't think that matters. Um, what does that have it, to do with it, anything? It's the headline on the column, I know you didn't write it, but it made me think a lot. Was, yes, actually I wrote this one. You did? Okay. Yep. Brian Scott's story should terrify everyone who loves football. And I saw the column and I read it and I thought to myself, and it should also terrify everyone who doesn't love football. 
because the reason why I stopped being a fan of the sport more than any other is having covered two Penn football players' suicides firsthand, you including know, being at the funeral. Kyle Ambrosi was one and Owen Thomas was the other. And I, I was at Kyle Ambrosi's funeral. And I had absolutely no idea what to do right, who to talk to. Nobody had any idea what to say about it. And both of them were, were CTE. And that was revealed I, after they yeah in the autopsy. And uh, there also, Kyle there's, also been a lot of, there's also been a lot of kids at Penn who didn't play football who have committed suicide. Yeah, but this show isn't about that. Right, but I mean that's this is my hesitation at the concussion issue. Sometimes when we start, I mean, I, I, under, I, mean, my, I understand I guess that, but right, right, right. But, but you're you're you've framed it as you've already framed it as football killed these guys. You said I stopped being a fan of the sport because I went to these guys' funerals. The implication being the sport somehow caused the funerals. It was proven in Owen Thomas and written oh, about it now. See, that's a word. That's what, see, that's that, but that's just it. That's the difficulty of the issue. They had CTE. That doesn't necessarily mean, there could have been, as Murph is saying, you know, look at Madison Holleran, you know, kind of the famous example, the, the track star who, you know, tragically killed herself. You know, just because they had CTE does not necessarily mean sure. that they killed but themselves if, but because of the CTE. If I can't watch the sport without thinking constantly about what the damage might be, mm -hmm. isn't that enough of a psychological barrier in the first place? It could be, depending on the person. Well, well, yeah, well and that's the other, the other part saying. of it is, and this is, you know, I might have been able to come back to the sport at some point to watch it, Roger Goodell trying to evade whatever whatever responsibility the NFL may or may not have. The manner in which Roger Goodell has, and others associated with the league have tried to run away from it has offended me. Okay. Okay. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard. It's, in some sense, I suppose, it's hypocritical to criticize the sport on the one hand or criticize, you know, like I said, this is, it's, it's a really, it's a tough subject, you know, in large part because so much of America, and, and uh, you know, I would certainly include Murph and myself in that Amer part of America, loves the sport. We love it for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, it's for, for the tactics of it, for, you know, playing it at a lower level if you're a high school player, you know, the sense of discipline and camaraderie that it can in certain situations provide, not across the board, but for certain individuals. Um, you know, all that stuff, you know, the, 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 the identification with your city, your college, your university, whatever the case may be, it's, it's tough stuff. Um, and that's, I, I think that's all we can say about it at this point until we start to learn, continue to learn more about it. And again, that gets back to what I said about Malcolm Jenkins and Zach Ertz. Uh, and I think we can kind of tie a bow around the topic and kind of get into what, um, you know, our, our plan for the show is, but, you know, I, I always feel like more information is a good thing. And that's what Jenkins and Ertz were talking about earlier this summer as guys who have sustained concussions and who do wonder about the trade-off. Like, I want to play now. I feel a sense of obligation to play now, not just to myself and my family, but to my team and my teammates and the franchise that is paying my salary. Uh, I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose this game. All those sorts of things go into it. And that, but, then, then, but again, it's the sense, as Jenkins and Ertz alluded to, that the NFL has been hiding something. Just as the National Hockey League has been accused repeatedly of hiding information from its players. And I'm a huge hockey fan, as you know, and it troubles me deeply. It hasn't yet troubled me enough to give up the sport because the nature of contact in hockey is a little bit different than it is in football. Mm -hmm. But it's it's pretty scary. So yeah, too. yeah. But you can have you Soc can soccer is one of the highest prevalence of concussions. It is, and at least in and in a lot of the world they don't care. But at least in this country, they're trying to do something about it. What are they trying to do? They're banning young kids from heading the ball, and they're teaching players to play the ball balls in different ways so that they're not jumping up into the air constantly and colliding with people. Well, they're. I mean, they and and they're also instituting very clear guidelines about when a player has to be removed from a game, and that's it, when there's a suspicion that, that sounds a concussion like football. That sounds like football. Yeah, day. save for the NFL coaches who send concussed players back onto the field. Oh, that never happens in soccer. Right. That's what big, Well, part of the reason why is because once a guy's out of a soccer game, <laughs> he can't go back in. You're adorable. But yeah. I, there's, there's 
soccer has been more proactive about it than other I understand sports. that, but I also believe that it's pointless in a lot of respects, or at least in certain respects, to try to eliminate all risk from life. And that gets back to what I said about Jenkins and Ertz and right. wanting more information to make their own decisions. I think it touches on what Brian told me about, hey, look, you know, he sustained the worst concussion of his life in 2009, and it never crossed his mind to retire at that point because after he missed the final two or three weeks of the season, he felt better, and he was back out there in 2010, 2011, and 2012. Um, you know, it, it, you can't, you cannot eliminate all risk from all life. And if, if, if my kids, I have two boys, if they want to play soccer when they're six or seven years old, and a ball is coming near their heads. I'm going to anticipate that they head it because it's part of the game and I'm going to weigh the risk and reward of heading the ball this one time when you're seven years old versus whatever CTE you might get years and from this, now. That This is the problem. You need to be able to, and life is all about, on a, on a fundamental level, and fr frankly, one of the brain's fundamental operations is to gauge risk versus reward and make the optimal decision. Um, and it, the problem with CTE is there's no percentage of prevalence of risk you know football players get cte you know golfers get struck by lightning you gotta you gotta give me some perspective on where on that spec we're on that continuum playing football lies in terms of i, I mean look unintended consequences are such a huge thing in the society like for example let's say we ban kids from playing football now again this is just a for instance and it's a for instance of why you need to attach a percentage to these things to even have an art to even ha start the discussion let's say there's a hundred thousand kids that play football let's say that the prevalence of ct let's say if you get football you have a uh, you know 10 percent chance of getting cte down the road so what, what would that prevalence be a hundred and a hundred thousand or a thousand and a hundred, yeah. So like a thousand kids. No, that's one percent. So ten thousand. So ten thousand kids out of a hundred thousand kids will, uh, you know, get CT if they play football. But let's say fifty. If you ban football, a hundred thousand kids now have to go find something else to do. Um, you have to compare that ten percent chance of CTE with what's the percent chance that this kid goes and locks himself in a refrigerator in the garbage dump and suffocates because he can't he's not playing football mm -hmm. what what's what's his, the increase of his heart disease rate because he's sitting on the couch eating doritos um you know and playing madden instead of playing football outside like these are i'm not saying that uh i'm not i'm not saying any of this to mitigate the risk of ct i'm just saying um people who argue against who argue that point don't necessarily do so from a position of empiricism and we can't really have the conversation until those numbers exist. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I totally see what you're saying. I mean, there's there's a lot of hyperbole yes. written about this. I remember reading a piece on Grantland when there still was a Grantland um, about a player. This happened late last year where a player in uh, New Jersey, I believe um, near Phillipsburg, maybe somewhere, Warren, New Jersey, I think it was, um, was killed when he was hit. It was not a head injury. It was he sustained internal bleeding. He was a quarterback. And he died. I mean, you might as well get, again, kind of get struck by a bolt of lightning on the football field. That's how frequently right. this kind of thing happens. And the writer for Grantland wrote a thousand words about how football kills. And it's, you know, we need to really, it's time to start banning football. And it was a completely reactionary position to take, a reactionary reaction yeah. to what had happened. If you go back and look at how many people not just high school kids or young Pop Warner kids, how many people died from playing football in 1940, 1950? Mm -hmm. The numbers are far higher then than they were now. Um, that doesn't mitigate, again, that doesn't mean that CTE is a real concern. It just means we have to have some kind of empirical perspective when we discuss these issues. Like how big, again, like golfing can kill you because lightning can kill you. But what are the odds of you getting hit by lightning while you're golfing? Um, you know, it's like the whole airplane, you know, safer travel versus car safety. Yeah, like airplanes are a danger, but they're not nearly as big of a danger as driving in a car. Right. You know, I mean, like, like for instance, and the other thing is this all or nothing binary that, I mean, it's like kind of how we're, it's kind of how we're wired these days. Because it's not an all or nothing thing. Relax, relax, relax. Let me talk. Um, the, uh, I forget what I was going to say now. <laughs> all right, oh, okay. Well, here's, here's, the, so here's the thing. Like, let's say for example, uh, football, um, 
football had an, a, rea- a reaction on people in which it burned their skin and down the road created lesions that had the, can- that had the potential to turn into cancer um, and one of the most deadly forms of cancer. Like what if football did that to you? You know, uh, people would say, let's ban football, but we're not saying let's ban the sun. You know, we're just saying let's be smarter about how we go outside in the sun. You know, right. like it's the problem is like the, we, we, we create these narratives and then everyone, you know, all these writers and media rush to like substantiate the narrative. And it, like I just read a story in The New York Times about the, um, you know, the, the wrestler slash football walk on football player at Ohio State. Um, who killed himself in a dumpster mm-hmm. and was found. And the fact is, he didn't even play for Ohio State. Right. But like, the whole thing was kind of about, you know, and, and again, poor mother, like, of course you're looking of for... Of course, yeah. But, but the fact is, you know, if we just get to the point where anyone who's ever played football and, and then does something like that, if we just blame football, it, it's kind of obscuring a lot of problems that... I mean, if as you read the story, you saw a whole lot of other, other problems with yeah. this kid that may have led him to killing himself in a dumpster. And it's not necessarily football... And I think some of the righteous indignation, you know, I don't want to say dangerous, but I think it's, I don't think it's necessarily fair. I don't I also don't think, you know, I also don't think it's fair to say Roger Goodell killed somebody. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, you can say what you want, but like, I just don't think that's a fair way to set, set up the thing. I didn't say Roger Goodell killed somebody. But the, that was the implication. No, I, you I, said he, you said the NFL covered up. You, you said, I don't watch, I don't like football anymore because I've gone to funerals and the NFL has covered up things. And that implies that the NFL covering up things killed these people, and that's why you're not a fan of football. I I think that the NFL covering up things speaks to what Malcolm Jenkins was saying. The question is, do they have all the information that they need to have? Mm -hmm. I made a decision for myself, just as you've made a decision for yourself, David, and you've made a decision for yourself, Mike. I've never tried to impose it on anybody. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, I, I... but I think I have a different perspective on it than the two of you do. I'm sure you do. That's that's I'm, I, that's why we're having this discussion. Um, but in fleshing out why you have that perspective and why we have ours, you know, that's that, you know, hopefully we eventually get to the point where we can reach some kind of agreement on certain things, and then that's what pushes this sort of thing forward. All right, let's talk about the Eagles. Okay. Yeah. Um, you have headlines that you want me to read. I do. We're gonna we're gonna start giving this podcast a little bit of form, and, mm-hmm. and I'd like to take a look back at the week um, to kind of start things off and and look at. Um, we've got we've got some headlines we're gonna run down. Call it a week in review, or a uh, we'll come up with a snappy name and a snappy drop for it. So I don't anyway, know. well, snappy, fire away. Snappy dream. drop might be reaching for things, but a snappy name we can do. Okay. Okay. First, Wendell Smallwood returned to practice on Saturday. Today's Monday after missing the first three weeks of training camp with a strained quad. What will the Eagles running back depth chart look like for week one? All right. If you put Ryan Matthews in bubble wrap until then, he will be your number one running back. I think Darren Small, Darren Sproles would be number two. I think Wendell Smallwood will be at best number three. I think it's possible Kenyon Barner will be the number three running back. That's how I would... Look at the depth chart right now, and I liked what I, I liked the little bit I saw of Barner uh, Thursday night in that first preseason game against Tampa. Yeah, I, I mean the running back depth chart to me is perhaps the position on the team that you can project project the least because it just it's very hard to imagine them heading into a season without a guy who has a track record of staying healthy and yes. being healthy enough to carry fifteen to twenty times a yes. game. Ryan Matthews could be that guy. Uh, you know, he's done it once or twice in his career, but he just, you know, he's getting older. Like, logic suggests he's not going to all of a sudden have his healthiest, most productive season <laughs> as a pro in 2016. Right. I would not be surprised if every day Howie Roseman is waking up and hoping that a running back crosses the waiver wire. It tends not to happen until later in camp. Uh, you know, Chris Johnson is an example of a guy who got picked up last year and, you know, in, in somewhat of a similar situation. I think the Cardinals were a little better off than, than the Eagles are this year because they had David Johnson, who I think was a second-round pick. They, they had drafted a lot of running backs over the previous few years. They just didn't have any that were good, it seemed like. Yeah, I, I would be surprised at that only because I think they feel like they like Smallwood and he'll be okay health-wise. Um, they like Barner a little bit. Um, but what's interesting about the point you raise is that you know, the context is, well, we're all going back to 1999 and 2000 with the way they did things then. And if you remember back then, uh, they were quick to do those kinds of things when it came to running back. Deuce Staley got hurt 
early on in the 2000 season. Everybody remembers the pickle juice game where they started the season against the Cowboys and Deuce ran all over them for like 200 yards. He got hurt three or four weeks into that season and was out the rest of the season. And they made do with running back the rest of the way with Darnell Autry and Chris Warren. Autry was kind of a scrap heap sort of young guy, and Warren had been a guy who had been productive and still had a little bit of tread left on his tires, and they were able to kind of eke out a season with those two guys. So, but Chris Warren's the kind of guy I'm thinking. Of. Yeah, but that's my but my point is, I think they feel like while you know there is some history to suggest is what you're suggesting is going to happen, I still would be surprised if it did. I think they're gonna they're gonna tend to give Smallwood and Barner more of a chance than they otherwise would. I'm not a huge Barner fan. Uh, let's also uh, they also brought in Dorsey Levens in 2002 at one point. Yes. Um, yeah. A couple but anyway, years later. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think I think it goes Smallwood, some combination of Smallwood, Sproles, Matthews, and then I think that there's a I think there's going to be a little bit of competition for that loss spot. I think Byron Marshall's probably a practice squad guy, and Kenyon Barner sticks around. I just don't. I just think anybody who thinks Kenyon Barner is going to be more than what he has been first first three or four years in the NFL is Wishful, wishfully thinking. I don't have a bell or a dinger or anything like that. But okay. we, will, we will move on to the next question. After a sweep of the Colorado Rockies over the weekend, the Phillies are only six and a half games out of a wild card spot. Do they have a chance? And before you answer, let me note the rest of this month's schedule for them. Three games against the Dodgers at home midweek. The Cardinals come to town this coming weekend. Then they go two games at the White Sox, three at the Mets. And then three at home against the Nationals to close out August. Do they have a chance in the wild card? That is the question. <laughs> no. I made these questions up. Yeah, no, they do not. And I agree it, with you on it, that. It would be the height of foolishness to act as if they did. If they acted as if they did, I don't think they will. Others um, might. <laughs> um, for fun and profit. Yeah, exactly. But uh, no, they do not have a chance at the wild card. Wow. Well, I guess I'm, I feel a little bit. I feel a little embarrassed about my answer. Do you have now. CTE to come your, up with these your questions? Que- your question, Dave. No, I think I just wanted to get through the Phillies a bone because I was shocked when I looked at the standings. Yeah, I was. I kind of was too. <laughs> like, all right. So here's the thing about baseball, and this bothered me back in 2012, back in 2013. Everybody is within six and a half games of the wild card. I mean, it's not about. It's about how many teams who are in between you and the wild card mm-hmm. spot, almost more so than it is the number of games. Because if you do the probabilities, the Phillies still have like a. One percent or zero percent shot of actually qualifying for the postseason. It yeah. just looks. I will say this. I think Pete McCannon has done a heck of a job this year with this team, uh, and I really struggle to see how they are as close to five hundred as they are, I given given the sum of of the you know individual parts. Mike Mike Sielski is about to sneeze. No, it's a cough. <laughs> It's a sne- I it's muted a his. I muted his microphone just in time. That was imp- that was that was something. Sorry about that. I'm back. Yeah, okay. and, you know, it was just real quick. It's interesting to me. I'm I'm curious to see as we move forward how much, for lack of a better word, power the front office gives McCannon. There was a really kind of interesting back and forth last week between McCannon and Vince Velasquez. I don't know if you you read this. Mm-hmm. Matt Gelb had the reporting on this where Velasquez had kind of a rough outing and McCannon said after the game that basically in so many words Vince has to learn to pitch there's a difference between just throwing his fastball and locating it and he's going to have to learn that and and you know it's not just a matter of kind of letting it go I think I have the the gist of his uh, statement correct and Gelb and the other reporters went to Velasquez about that and Velasquez kind of rolled his eyes at McCannon saying that so make of that what you will but that leads me to wonder, because we also heard rumors about the Phillies shopping Velasquez or teams being interested. So I, that just makes me wonder, like, okay, does McCannon have that much power where he can, you know, kind of tell a kid, look, get with the program or else, and have management backing, in, backing him up in any way? Okay. As we record this show, Lane Johnson has not been suspended yet. The expectation is that he will be. Ten games, I believe, for performance-enhancing drugs, which... Yeah, I mean, Lane Johnson blamed, has all but he said says, that he expects to be suspended. He says he put something in his body they didn't know about or something like that. The Players Union hadn't banned or approved or whatever. Everybody's talking about whose fault it, fault it is. But this much we know. Uh, if he's gone, the Eagles are going to have themselves a problem, not only in the short term, 
but potentially the long term. What do you think Lane Johnson's long term future is in Philadelphia? All right, I'm going to start out with this one because I don't know. And I'm actually kind of curious what Mike Sielski has to say. Uh, number one, in a list of interesting things about this situation, ESPN's Field Yates at one point reported that pretty much all of the money that remains on Lane Johnson's, you know, five years, $66 million or so contract that he signed this offseason converts to non-guaranteed money if he has another uh, PED suspension. Yes. Now, that's interesting. <laughs> that alone is interesting on a number of different levels. First of all, that the Eagles thought to put that in the contract. Yes. Uh, that is not standard operating procedure as far as anything I've been able to discern. So, you know, maybe it's just a case of the lawyers dotting their I's and crossing their T's, which is what they get paid to do. Or maybe the Eagles had some, you know, legitimate concerns about old Lane's training regimen, you know? And I, I do believe Lane when he says it, make, it would make no sense for a guy to start shooting himself up with HGH after he signed a long-term well, it, contract extension. It, it, I, it would in this regard. Here's, here's where I come down. To answer the question... I'm unsure about his future, too, for this reason. Remember that Lane Johnson has been a lineman for a very short period of time in his football career. In high school, he was a quarterback. He entered Oklahoma, having been recruited as a quarterback. It was only when he got to Oklahoma that they converted him into an offensive lineman. He goes on and becomes the fourth overall pick in the 2013 draft. He gets popped for, for PEDs his second year in the league. And he's one of these guys who, it seems to me, it's possible, it's possible, I'm not saying this is what happened, it's possible he might feel like he needs something extra beyond the, whatever the Eagles can provide for him to perform. On Sunday. Now he has not said that. I'm just I'm I'm extrapolating based on the evidence so far. In that situation, the fact that he signed the contract wouldn't necessarily preclude him or stop him from continuing to take certain things or to go off board in what he takes, feeling like I've got to maintain weight. I now have this contract that I have to perform and live up to. It may not be anything nefarious. It may just be a sense of insecurity. My point is, he may be the kind of guy who feels like I've got to do a little bit extra because I'm otherwise I'm too small or I fear I'm too small to play this position at the level I'm being paid to play it at. So to answer the initial question, I'm really unsure about his future and everything Murph you said about the nature of his contract you know, only adds another of layer of intrigue onto this. This is not John Runyon. This is not six, seven, three hundred pounds can eat, you know, a, a thirty-five ounce piece of steak and is good to go. This is not Jim Tomey with the Phillies, who's just country strong. Lane Johnson is country, but Lane Johnson needs a little bit extra. Whatever the case may, you know, whether it's supplements, whether it's more work in the gym, whatever the case may be, to keep the weight on him that's going to make him an effective lineman. Yeah, I mean, the, I'm looking at this strictly from a economic mm-hmm. standpoint. Yeah. And it just strikes me as unlikely that a guy would value his shame at $5 million, which is what I think he's going to miss by missing these 10 games. Um, now, again, I'm not saying... I'm just talking about... When we think of PED guys, we think of, you know, steroids, HGH. Right. I'm just saying, I think, I believe, I, I, I tend to believe him when he says there was something in the supplement. Um, you know, I just don't, I just think there's enough supplements out there. And now you can push the envelope with supplements. The supplements might not be legal. Right. But, uh, you know, I just, I, I get it. I just don't think he's very, I don't know what he was thinking, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, I'm not sure what he was thinking either, unless he's thinking, I'm not good enough with the stuff I am allowed to I'm just take. saying that makes sense to me before you sign the contract. But after you sign the contract, it's like, well, if I'm not good enough, then I might as well not jeopardize. I probably shouldn't be jeopardizing the money I've already signed. To or make, you say you know? to yourself, um, I need to be, I need to live up to the contract and therefore I'm going to, I need the extra or I need to go off whatever the approved list is, whatever. I mean, okay. Regardless. Yeah. 
I think we agree that his future is tenuous. At well, best. I mean, you have to define the future, and I think it's tenuous because a third a third positive test means he's gone for two years. Yeah, and you know, while you would think there's no way in hell he will test positive for a third time, I mean. For, for God's sakes, hire a guy and pay him $100,000 a year and make his only responsibility buying you supplements, yeah. getting them tested, and presenting you with a notarized form. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Yeah, it's, you're it's, right, because you need to have that level of proof if the NFL comes knocking right. again. It sounds, I mean, it sounds silly for people who make you know, our kind of money, but for Lane Johnson... It's an invest. It's 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 insurance. Right. You know, like have a supplement guy. Get turtle. Go go to <laughs> get yourself a turtle for supplements. Um, but so but that's the question now. Uh, you're not going to cut Lane Johnson, obviously, right? Not now, no. So, but then, so what? I mean, what? He's your, he, he's your left tackle essentially. I mean, what other? Well, he's presumed you, to be. I guess your my left question tackle. is, what do the what option do the Eagles have other than saying, well, I hope he doesn't test positive for a third time? Well, the the option becomes. He's not as good as they thought because, again, this is, I'm hesitant to speculate too much, but, you know, if he feels like he needs something, whether it's a supplement that may or may not be on the list, and if he's willing to open himself up to the risk of getting popped for PEDs, it's possible he feels like he needs to do that for some reason. Not just because he wants to, not just because he's dumb, but because he feels he needs to. And if he doesn't have that, and doesn't play as well, and the Eagles can cut him and not have to pay him a, a ton of money. Question for you. Can they cut him before this test comes back? Theoretically, not that they would. No. Can no. They, but again, not that they would. They would. They can't. They cannot. If they cut him, they would. it, it would be a cap charge of $23 million. Fine. Incorporating the cap charge. Anyway. If the, if even if for whatever dumb reason they take the cap, no, the, the, like they physically don't have enough room under the cap to. Cut okay, it. fine. Because what I was gonna fine, what I was gonna ask is, they cut him on the theory that this thing is gonna come back positive and it doesn't. Does he have a grounds to then? No, this is we're already through. A, a, this is not even what we're talking about. Like okay, it's, it's not gonna happen. Uh, yeah. It probably won't happen next year because again, even though the even though the money is not guaranteed, the Eagles are still on the hook for. Uh, now I don't know if there's what, any okay. I don't know if there's any backdoor thing you can do with avoiding a contract with the NFL, but as far as far as I know, if they cut him next year, it's a it's a sixteen million dollar cap take, hit. Then take take Lane Johnson's name out of it. Then can a player be cut between the second sample first and the second samples? The second sample comes back that he didn't test positive. And well, player, a, player, a player can be cut at any time. Any time. Okay. But if you're a team, why would you do that? Why would you cut him if he's if it's likely he's going to be suspended? Why would you cut him before he's suspended and open yourself up to that? I, I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. I'm just curious. No. I, I mean, a player can be cut at any time. Yeah. Okay. That's Then that's... Yeah, for the only thing stopping, at any time for any reason? The only okay, thing fine. stopping a team from cutting any particular player, really, is the salary cap for, ramifications. For whatever the hell reason they want. Yeah. Okay, fine. Next question. I'm going to combine two of these into one. The Phillies inducted Jim Tomey onto their wall of fame despite him playing two and a half seasons in Philly. Is that worth doing? And secondly, Bob Brookover wrote a column, I believe, in Monday morning's paper saying that Pete Rose should join Jim Tomey on the wall of fame. Do you agree? From a pure baseball standpoint. Which this is probably not. Per take, take Rose's gambling thing out of it if you were just going on pete rose's phillies career versus jim tomey's phillies career pete rose has more reason to be on the wall phillies wall of fame than jim jim tomey does that's not necessarily true because if you look at the phillies wall of fame <laughs> <laughs> there's some odd choices you've got guys like you know mike lieberthal mike lieberthal it's a popularity contest at a certain point right sure it is but rose was i think rightfully so regarded as the final piece of the 1980 championship puzzle. He had one of the all-time great seasons any Phillies players ever had the year before in 1979. People forget this, but you want to talk about a guy validating a free agent signing. Pete Rose did in 1979. Go back and look at his numbers from that year. He was great. Um, you know, breaks the National League all-time hit record while he's with the Phillies, uh, part of the Wee's kids in 83. Uh, I think the, the fact that he is banned from baseball obviously complicates matters. Um, I would have some... I, 
I'm not sure how I feel about it. I'm, I'm not a big, I don't like having the Hall of Fame discussion with people. I think it's in some ways kind of silly. Um, but so to answer your question, I think Pete Rose is more deserving of being on the Phillies wall of fame than Jim Tomey is. Pete Rose in 1979, 331 batting average, 418 on base percentage. Yeah, we, we sit here talking about performance enhancing drugs and how, how much of a hue and cry we make about that and how much of a hue and cry we make about gambling on baseball. And I try to figure out who deserves to be excluded from what for what reason. And that's, you know, at a certain point, I think Rose is going to be let back in by some commissioner. Well, I th- see, I personally, and then Murphy can take the answer. I personally think gambling on baseball is infinitely worse, is, is a lot worse. I won't say sure, infinitely, a lot worse sure. than taking performance-enhancing yeah. drugs. Because if you're taking performance-enhancing drugs, you're doing nothing but trying to be better for yourself and for your team. In gambling on baseball, particularly with when Rose you're is alleged to have it. done it, yeah, yeah you, you're the games all of a sudden are not on the level. I'm, I'm sorry, did, did Pete Rose ever pass a steroid test in his career? Was he administered one? I have no, no idea. I don't think yeah. he was administered Exactly. One. So I'm just saying. No, I'm, just, like, I'm talking in the aggregate. Right. But, but Go ahead. There were a lot of guys. I'm not saying Pete Rose on steroids. What I'm saying is, is the foolishness of penalizing guys who came up in a testing era. Yes. Again, versus guys who were free to do sure. whatever the heck they wanted. Right. Uh, I would agree. All right. One more that was not on the list. I will say this also. Yeah. I think on oh, Walls yeah. of Fame, as as abstract and ridiculous a discussion as this is, uh, they're essentially made for internet polls brought to you by Toyota. <laughs> or Dan, W.B. Mason. As Dan Baker pointed out. Either of, which could adver- either of which could advertise, pay us to advertise if they wanted to, but thus far have not, so we're giving them free advertising. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Um, Thompson Toyota in Doylestown, Sloan Toyota in Jenkintown. If you want to advertise on this podcast, (laughs) call us anytime. Please, please. Um, I think that if you're on, I think you should only be able to go on to one team's wall of fame. Uh, No, I don't Like to me, if like you're going to get your number retired as an Indian, it's hard to say that you had, you were, you were that had, you were that. I don't know. Babe Identified Ruth, with a... Pete Rose. Babe, Babe Ruth was a pretty great member of the Boston Red Sox. Pete Rose himself, Cincinnati and Philadelphia. It, what's that? Well, I know, but that's what I'm saying is that like Pete Rose to me will always be identified as a Cincinnati Red. Mm-hmm. I think that Jim Tomey will always be identified to me... As a Cleveland Indian. As a Cleveland Indian. And it's almost like by inducting either one of those onto your wall of fame, you're getting sloppy seconds. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's, that, a, that's a different story. That speaks to the nature of the Phillies franchise that, over yes, its 130 probably, years right. of existence. Speaking of, okay. Uh, last question, one that is not on the list, but I came up with and mentioned to you guys offhand before. In watching Dario Saric at the Olympics, ahead of where we thought he might be by the time he gets to Philadelphia, Mike? I think about what I thought. Um, I talked to Brett Brown about this last week. He showed up at Eagles practice, and I got a couple minutes with him. Um he seems to be a very smart player. He seems to play really hard. Um, he's a little more all, you know, European white stereotypes aside. He seemed a bit more athletic than I thought he would be. That doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be an exceptional NBA defender or that he's going to play above the rim or anything like that. I think he still needs to improve his outside shot. But from what I've seen of him in the Olympics, I think he can be a solid to very good right now rotational player for the Sixers and maybe something more. I was watching parasailing. <laughs> you know what I watched? I got to say, is the worst sport in the history of Olympic sports. They aren't even moving half the time. They're, they're literally f- floating on a life raft half the time trying to catch wind. <laughs> it's, it's awful. You should have seen this. You should have seen the finish to this. Para- I don't even know if parasailing is the name. You tweeted about wind, this. Wait, I saw the tweet. Windsurfing. Yeah. yeah. Windsurfing. You got to see this. It was the opposite of athleticism. The athleticism and like excitement. They're coming down the home stretch and they're literally drifting in the current, like tr- trying desperately to to waggle their sails back and forth to eke across the finish line. It was the opposite of a photo finish. Every you know, it, I don't know. It was like watching. It was it was literally like watching molasses molasses, uh, you Flow. know, ooze down the sidewalk. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Okay. Okay, we're gonna. It says here. Turn the focus for a while to the Eagles' first preseason game and what we learned. You do, you do not have to read the budget so, verbatim. As I pointed out when I sent the budget out today, this is just a... Like helpful guide. Helpful what, guide. What, what did we learn 
Quarterbacks aside, what did we learn from this game? All right, well, this game, first of all, is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers versus the Philadelphia Eagles in week one of the preseason, which took place on Thursday. I believe the Eagles won. I don't necessarily remember. 17-9. It was a thrilling victory that will set the tone for it the It was Doug so Peter thrilling scenario. that I was finished writing my column midway through the third quarter. Uh, you know what? We're going to skip right to the second thing that I have listed here on my yeah. handy-dandy list because it's, it's the thing I can't stop asking myself. And that's okay. Chase Daniel, colon, WTF, <laughs> question mark. <laughs> <laughs> that is that's the that that to I me mean, was, seriously what WTF I, I need that I need was a, that's that was, what I need a sound effects box that was the knows. but seriously that yeah, was the sure. question for everybody coming out of that game to, to me it even overshadowed Carson Wentz in the sense that why having watched that would you, would make anyone let alone Doug Peterson who had been around Chase Daniel for three years in Kansas City think that bringing him here was going to help anything he's not a coach he's supposed to be a quarterback the the salary cap we've we've discussed this on the show before the salary cap for any NFL team is finite you only have so much money to spend and he is taking up valuable resources the Eagles are using valuable resources on their salary cap for a guy who as Murph has said on television by all appearances, is a scrub. Yes. Not only are the it was bad enough when the Eagles decided to pay a backup quarterback seven million dollars after already having paid a starting quarterback eighteen million dollars and with plans to trade a lot of valuable assets up to to draft a rookie quarterback. That was all already ludicrous. It turns out the guy they're paying seven million dollars isn't even a good backup quarterback. I mean. Mark Sanchez is infinitely more talented than this guy. There are times where you can look at a preseason game and say, yeah, it's a preseason game. That's a hell of an insult, by the way, that Mark no, Sanchez No, but, but, but Sanchez is a good example of it. Like, you could watch Sanchez in the preseason two years ago. Remember, if you remember, Nick Foles was here, and Sanchez had an incredible preseason. And everybody said, well, maybe there was really they're really starting the wrong guy quarterback. Maybe they're only starting Nick Foles because he's coming off 27 touchdown passes and two interceptions. And then you see Sanchez in the regular season, and you realize it's still Mark Sanchez. You know, what we saw in the preseason, you take with a grain of salt. Thursday night for Chase Daniel was not like that. Yes, there was the mitigating factor of the offensive line was terrible, but it only served to accentuate, really, how hapless he was. Because he was not capable at all of making that situation work in any regard in any way he it, it looked like he couldn't see over the line of scrimmage he couldn't get the ball down the field it it was like wh- why why is he here and that has been the question we've been asking for months we've been asking for months because he does not look very good in training camp either and the only saving grace of his in training camp is that very rarely do plays get blown dead because of a pass rush getting to the quarterback. You know, what we see in, in preseason is, okay, you know, a lot of these throws that these guys are making in practice, would they have been sacked on that throw or not? And the answer with Chase Daniel is almost always yes. Yeah. I mean, look. <laughs> I mean, you can't see, like, the guy, when you're, when you're, this guy, I'm 6'1", six six foot and three quarters, 6'1". I'm at least two inches, two and a half inches taller than this guy in cleats when we're standing next to each other. Yeah. Hey, he is that short. You know, I mean, he's a short, short, short man. Um, and he doesn't have a strong arm. I mean, Doug, Doug, uh, Doug Flutie and Drew Brees are short men, but they have very strong arms. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention a lot of skill. Yeah. More Chase Daniels does not Chase have Daniels. any of that. And it, no. it, it's just remarkable to me that that this was a precondition of Doug Peterson coaching in 2016. Yeah. Look, it didn't make Chase Daniel in theory didn't make sense because... <laughs> If you're going to go draft, assume you're going to have Carson Wentz, you're going to go get Carson Wentz, or you're going to draft a quarterback, whatever the case may be, you either keep Sam Bradford and make the quarterback you draft or trade up twice to get, make him the number two, or you say goodbye to Sam Bradford either by releasing him, letting him sign as a free agent, or trading him, and then you sign Chase Daniel you know, to be the, the placeholder to be Doug Peterson's Doug Peterson until Wentz is ready. What they've managed to do, and I have to say, Murph, you and I are 
it seemed it feels like two of the only people in town who have said this since the beginning of this entire fiasco that this was not going to work that this is ridiculous um you know you, you you just can't do it the way they're trying to do it in theory now you see it in practice and you see what chase daniel actually is it makes even less sense it makes even less sense because he's not good enough a to warrant the salary or B, even to have been the starter if you got rid of Sam Bradford. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this team, Carson Wentz has a long, long way to go, but I, I, I firmly believe this team is better with Wentz than Daniel, which at, yes. at some point raises the question, well, why is Daniel here? All, literally all he's doing is getting in the way. And, uh, you know, I apologize, Chase. I apologize, Mrs. Daniel. He's a terrifically nice guy. Shout out to the Daniel family. Yeah, but he's, but. It just, this is a big boy league. And, uh, you know, he's in the way. It just doesn't. It, he, he convolutes everything. You know, yeah. I wrote today. You can only you can only really accommodate one quarterback, one one guy on the roster. There's only one guy you can use the kid gloves with, and that right now apparently that's Sam Bradford. He's the one who's in there for three series and then out. He's the one who you're you know going out of your way to mitigate risk for. You know, Carson Wentz is is somewhat now at the has been somewhat the mercy of you know the situation in front of him and. You know that means him playing behind a third offensive line. That means him playing against a third team defense. That I don't. I'm not blaming his situation for the injury. I am just saying it's not an optimal situation for it. Because Lord knows the offensive line didn't play that much better for Chase Daniel. I am just saying the, the number one priority in this organization should be getting this guy. Re- this yes. guy. I mean Carson Wentz ready to be the starting quarterback. And I think giving reps to Chase Daniel is. Counterproductive. I don't see how that helps the mission. That said, how much panic is there over Wentz's injury? There shouldn't be any panic. There shouldn't be panic. There should be concern from the standpoint that, number one, it's getting to the point that if you look at Wentz's injury history, he had a concussion in high school. He played through as a junior at uh, North Dakota State two ankle injuries. He missed half of his senior season because of a broken wrist, and now he has suffered a hairline fracture of a rib. Now, you can say none of those are related. That's fine. And I will say to you, Sam Bradford, which is to say that if we're going to grade Sam Bradford on the curve of he's injury prone, then at what point do you start asking the same questions about Carson Wentz? Okay, because not all of Bradford's injuries have been related either. Yeah, he's torn the same ligament in his knee twice, but he's also suffered AC joint injuries to both shoulders um, and had a concussion and has had a lot of unrelated bumps and bruises. So my point is... Yeah, but Sam Bradford is a weak, you know, wuss, et cetera. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's my point. But that's my point yeah. is that, um, you know, we, Murph and I were talking before we came on the podcast. At some point during a preseason... You kind of have to approach an NFL team has to approach the quarterback position as if it were a major league baseball team approaching innings amongst its starting rotation. At some point you just have to have guys who can be out there for a while. And you can't have that with Bradford now because he's supposed to be your starter. You now can't have that with Wentz because he's hurt. Is it Chase Daniel and McLeod Bethel Thompson who are going to be those guys who are just going to eat time in the preseason? What is the point here? Like, I don't, I'm not jumping down the Eagles' throats for putting Wentz out there as long as they did because you have to get the kid work. If you're not, if, if your plan, which I think is a bogus plan, but if it's your plan to not play him at all during the regular season, you have to get him work somehow. You have to develop him somehow. But if you're going to put Chase Daniel behind the number two offensive line and relegate Chase uh, Carson Wentz to the number three offensive line, that I would have an issue with. Having Chase Daniel here mucks that up. Yeah, it's just complicated. It's just, a, it's just another variable that needs to be planned around and, and doesn't make much... There isn't much upside for, for right. the Eagles putting themselves in that situation. You know, I don't... I think the thing with Carson Wentz First and foremost, above all else, is is this guy an NFL passer? That's the question. You know, even if he misses, if he plays ten seasons and misses three with an injury, if he's an NFL passer, then it's worth it. I think we've proven, but we seem to sense that the answer to that question is yes. What do you mean? That he is an NFL passer. I don't know. That's I mean that's that's the question to me. Like I 
I think he's got an NFL arm. I think he's got he throws an NFL ball. He's got NFL size. Uh, so what's he left? He clearly has NFL gumption. Putting it all together in front of a live blitz. Yeah. Um, and that's very difficult. Well, then I'll, then I'll ask you a admittedly dumb question, but I'll, nonetheless, I'm going to do it. When the receiver drops the ball, who's faults it? I mean, it's, but that's not that's not that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is it's a receiver's fault, clearly. But there's also a certain amount of churn that needs to be built into an NFL game. Receivers are going to are going to drop balls. Oh, sure, you know, but what what you've explained to me is everything up to the point of the receiver catching the football. No, what I've what I've explained to you is a guy in a vacuum on a practice field throwing a football. There's a lot of difference between that and then throwing yourself out there and having to do it in three seconds. Yeah. Um, I mean... That's what I was asking you to clarify. Yeah. There's a difference. For instance... I, I, and I, I, I agree with you. I just... Yeah. Did. I forget if we discussed this. I think we did last week on the podcast. Like, I talked to a quarterback coach a few years ago. This is to accentuate Murph's point about the, the importance of getting live reps in games, either in the preseason or even better in the regular season. I talked to a quarterback coach years ago talking about throwing motions in the NFL. And we were talking about Wentz and having that little bit of a hitch in his delivery. And the quarterback coach said, you know who has one of the best deliveries in the NFL, most fluid throwing motions, is Mark Sanchez. The problem is, is that when you get Mark Sanchez behind a live offensive line, A, his lack of arm strength is brought to bear, and B, his um, frequent inability to recognize coverages is brought to bear. So he throws a beautiful ball on a crossing route, the problem is he doesn't see the linebacker in front of the, the receiver and it's intercepted and returned for a touchdown. Well, I think, I mean, think about it. Think about it. Like, let's say I asked you to do, um, you know, 12 times 15. I got it. What is it? 180. Okay. Now, what if I asked you that and then started yelling and screaming in your face and chasing you around the room? You know, it'd be a lot harder for you to think of that answer. I mean, I would ask you a different one, but and I'm not going to do it here because we don't have enough room. But that's the thing about playing the NFL. Like, it, you can you can be the best practice player in the world. Sam Bradford's a very impressive practice player. But again, like one of the knocks on him in St. Louis was that once he was in a situation where he had to compress all of that decision making ability and mechanical execution into a three second window that an NFL pass rush affords you, you know. There was a bit of a drop off. Put yeah. put it in put it in terms of our profession. It's one thing to be able to write an eight hundred word right. column when you have five hours to do it. Right. It's another thing when you have twenty minutes. Right. And make it coherent. I mean, I've seen sports writers start there's crying on deadline because yeah. they can't do it. Like some of the, there's some writers who just can't do it. You know. Right. And there's some quarterbacks who just can't do it. And that more than anything is what separates good quarterbacks from bad quarterbacks, average quarterbacks from liabilities. And. I think the jury is still very much out on whether Carson Wentz can do it. And I think one of the questions of this, that this injury does raise, I think in terms of implications, is not necessarily can he stay healthy, but how does his now understanding of how the NFL yes. works affect the way he plays? Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, will he start to, you know, he's, to me, I was impressed with the way he seems to have a feel for what's going on around him without having to look at it. Because that's what you know, again, the, the people in the St. Louis organization would tell you about Bradford. It always seemed like he had one eye on, on the yes. blitz, you know, and yeah. you can't do that. Like watching, I, I bring up Andrew Luck for everything, but he's pretty much the perfect quarterback. Um, you know, he's always moving in the pocket. He's always cocked and ready to throw. He's always in the load position, but his eyes are always downfield and he's never, you know, watching what's going on around him. You know, it's like it, it, it's a, a skill set similar to finishing at the rim in traffic. You know, like you just kind of have to let your body go and mm -hmm. feel what it's doing. Some guys just can't do it. Mm -hmm. um, Wentz, I thought, uh, and I and I don't know that Jared Goff has this because I watched Jared Goff play. I watched Paxton Lynch play. And I frankly, I thought Carson Wentz was the most impressive out of them. Mm -hmm. um, I think he that, that's always been the thing that's impressed me most is he seems to have a natural feel for his footwork and what needs to get done. He's not he's not necessarily technically perfect at it, but he seems to have a feel for it. And he showed that. The question is, you know, can he execute? Because we saw him make a cut. That one throw was as bad a throw as you'll see. Um, the I mean, interception? Had, no, no, no. Oh, no, that was deep, as bad the, a throw. The deep one, like he threw it like 20 yards yeah. out of bounds. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's the question is whether, can, can he consistently put it all together? Um, you know, I mean, you see guys, it's like a pitcher in a bullpen session. Like, yeah. some guys look awesome in bullpen sessions, but they get out there on the mound and they just can't do it. Jake Thompson might be one of those guys, to be honest, like, yeah. to bring up another 
Uh, I don't know what you thought about him, but I, you know, I haven't I've, had a chance to see him much, to be honest. Okay, I really haven't. Like he just he he seems to speed up a lot when he's out there in a game situation, and he's going to have to, you know, mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons why Roy Halladay ended up going down right uh, to the minor leagues when he was 24, 25 years old, because again, this was a guy who had the best stuff in the world uh, and looked great in bullpen sessions, but he would get out into a game and. You know, there's a lot of external variables that then start affecting mm-hmm. you. And he needed to, he will tell you that he needed to learn how to block those external variables right. out. Carson Wentz can slide, though. He, just, he needs to learn to slide. I mean, he needs to be willing to do it. I mean, you know, he doesn't need to try to hurdle opposing defenders as his head coach suggested he ought to learn. Yeah. Um, he if, need, he, if he does, he will be a superhero in this town. Well, no, I mean, doesn't make it. I'm just doesn't make it right. So here's the problem with Carson Wentz, and and I said this first time I watched Carson Wentz when I sat down and watched his throws, um, you know, in January. He remind he actually remind the guy he reminds me more of anybody physically is Cam Newton. Hmm. Um, uh oh, but a poor man's version of Cam Newton. Uh oh, what do you mean? No, I I Cam Newton's a great athlete, great football player. I my only thing with Cam Newton is as a passer. Um, Carson Wentz as a passer reminds me a little bit about of uh, Aaron Rodgers, just in terms of his. His motion, the way he the way he operates. I'm not comparing them. I'm just they're on the same spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, the the thing that the thing the reason the thing that makes Cam Newton such a freak and such an anomaly, and, and the reason why he's so sustainable, his success is so sustainable, is because his body is so big yes. and can absorb the punishment. And, and now let's keep in mind, Cam Newton has not been an injury free individual. He you know he cracked his ribs in the preseason at one point. Yeah, but his body his body is he he has a huge 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 body. He's built like LeBron. Wentz is tall, and he's he's you know he's 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 got a nice frame. He's thicker than Bradford. Right, he's thicker than Bradford, but he's not as th- he's not even as thick as Andrew Luck. You right. know, so he does put it this way. I don't think he can play the way Cam Newton plays, uh, because I just don't think uh, you know. I again, he took two two huge hits. Uh, that's what every hit's going to look like against him. Yeah. Whereas Cam Newton, the guy's going the other way when he right. hits him. You right. know, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I, the analogy I thought you were going to say was Donovan McNabb. He does remind me of McNabb too. Yeah. You know, oh dear God! No, what? Oh dear God! There's nothing wrong with reminding. <laughs> no, I, it, it's it's me playing the trope of the Eagles fan on. No, I, I mean he Twitter reminds who, me more of McNabb in that McNabb was not McNabb was not really a polished passer. You you couldn't start to see his development as a as a purely pocket passer until I would argue the end of the 2003 season, the the year before they got T.O. Everybody remembers 04. You know, Donovan throws 31 touchdowns, 10 interceptions. He's got T.O., he's got Westbrook, he's got Chad Lewis, everything looks great. The second half of the 03 season, after he'd been banged up for the first couple of weeks, you know, he really started to look pretty good as, as a within the pocket. And at the time, he could still run. He was still willing to run and capable of running as he had run his first couple of years. But think about how long that took. You're talking 99, 2000, 2001, 2002. Um, before he really started to look polished um, in that regard. So, um, you know, that's who Wentz reminds me of. Like, he can uncork a a throw like anybody, you know, no question about the arm strength. And there are going to be times where he stands in the pocket, plants his foot, and gets the ball downfield and look great doing it. But there are going to be other times where he's going to misfire badly on some throws. And they're just going to have to live with that for a while. Well, it's going to be interesting. So, uh, to kind of put a bow on this, Wentz, talked yesterday briefly at, at the open practice sunday. when i say yesterday you mean i mean sunday we're recording this on monday and said he's hopeful he'll be back by the start of the season but again like a you know a fractured rib it's not like something that you can really speed up the right. healing it just kind of has to heal yeah. um, so i would say there's a good chance that he's out for the remainder of training camp and from that point on uh, it's going to be interesting to see what the eagles do in order to get him the yeah. reps that he missed out on yes you know here i mean this you know, I I think it it is possible to overstate the impact of this injury. You know, I don't I don't think again I don't think panic is the right word to use. I, I don't think when you look ten years down the road, you know, the fractured rib Carson Wentz sustained his first training camp is going to be, you know, a huge factor one way or the other in his career. That being said, it's a big factor for this season. Yeah, and how the Eagles progress because, you know, training camp you get a lot a lot a lot of reps. And, you know, there's more. That's the whole reason why they have McLeod Bethel Thompson in campus, because there's too many reps for everybody to share. 
Yeah. Know. Yeah. I, I think it gets to the but heart. But in practice, of, it's the opposite. It gets to the heart of what they want this season to be in a way. You know, they've, and we've, ta- again, we've talked about this before. They have tried to straddle this line between going after a playoff spot this season and admitting that they're rebuilding. Okay. Well, now you're in a situation, it seems to me, where you can't straddle that line. You, you've got to make a decision because this kid is not going to have the opportunity to develop in the way you would hoped he would over the month before the season began. He's just going to be standing there and watching. And so, A, how do you get him those reps? And B, you know, what do you sacrifice in the interim? And so, you know, as we've said, the priority all along should have been getting him ready. Now it's harder to do that. So what are you going to do? Are you going to say, okay, well, we don't have them, and we're going to have to slow this whole process down, and so we are going to go for a playoff berth this year. We're going to try to get we're, – we're going to see what Sam can do, and therefore we're going to keep this veteran guy or that veteran guy uh, or you know, and, and just try to go for it. Or do you say, the heck with it, we've got to – Admit we're rebuilding, and now we have no recourse but to take our time. And goodbye, Ruben Randall, because you can't do anything other than not run past patterns the right way. Um, goodbye to this veteran. Goodbye to that veteran. We are in full rebuilding mode. It'll be interesting to see. Eagles play the Steelers. They are in Pittsburgh on Thursday night. Uh, I would assume there's going to be a lot less people sticking around for the second half on television. Oh, yeah. Oh God! Um, yeah, you could. That was the, that to me was the most amusing part of this past Thursday's game against Tampa, which was that Lincoln Financial Field was half empty for kickoff, but by the middle of the second quarter, it was completely full because people had gotten there in time to see Carson Wentz play, and then they got rewarded because he went into the game with a minute and ten seconds left in the first half. I don't know what your plans are next week, but I will be at the Phillies on Tuesday um, because Chase Utley will be back in town, and uh, I'm sure he will fill up. Fill up the tape recorder. I will. Uh, I would be surprised if he did that. I will be at Eagles practice on Tuesday, uh, and then beyond that, I'm not sure. You guys have fun. I'll see you in September. All right. I'm Sounds good. We'll dust you off out of this closet when we. we I, I assume you just stay in here all week, right? No, I'm, I'm next this week or next week. No, he's on vacation. This week. I'm just saying, like we turn out the lights and you just kind of oh, like hang yeah. upside down until right. the next exactly. week's podcast. And then I'm on vacation until through Labor Day. So I'm excited for you. Where are you going? Uh, off the west coast for a while nice wine country pardon wine country no, uh, well not really further north of that seattle vancouver portland up that way sounds fun cool enjoy yeah. yourself all right Thank see you. you next week